Well, as I mentioned earlier, coming through the unusual events of divine providence uh, towards us as a people in the past week and the um, people coming back from the retreat and uh, some not being with us uh, this morning in the Sunday school. Hopefully we'll see them later as we gather for worship. Um, I'm open to interrupting our consideration of Romans and uh, having another week to to ponder and to plan and to to study and to prepare uh, for that. Um, And if you have a question you'd like to raise in an open format, uh, you're, you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to direct our Sunday school discussion in some other way. If not, we can go into Romans, and I'm sure there'll be enough I'll have to, to, to show you or to think the things we can say and things that would be unto profit if we go back into Romans chapter 1. But I'll leave it up to you. If you have something you'd like to raise this morning to do that, either if you're present here or by YouTube. I'm sorry, by what do we do here? We do Zoom. Zoom is what we do, not YouTube, Zoom. If not, um, let's go back to Romans then. I guess that's the consensus. And what I tried to do last week is I tried to tell you that it's a, it's a, a problem that we have, I think, in biblical study and biblical interpretation, is that we have a very carefully worked out understanding of divine truth that comes to us through the history of interpretation, through what we have as we read the scriptures along with the great tradition. Um, Our tradition, having come from the Reformation in particular, there are certain things that were accentuated in the time of the Reformation that uh, we know to be true. We can verify it by teachings from the scriptures. But you see, a lot of times those teachings that were very important and central at one given period of time, simply because the church was confronting contrary ideas, uh, wrong notions, error, or heresies, and looking to bring the church back to, to truth, um, it, 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 uh, it um, focused in upon those th- particular things, and those things began to become more all-consuming. And uh, though other aspects of biblical truth, other aspects of God's salvation were known, understood, we find mention of it in confessions of faith. I mean, you just look at the way in which uh, justification is defined in contrast to, let's say, um, adoption or sanctification. We have a much more fulsome statement because it's became a very important issue. And then having that mindset, this is the important issue. These are the things we celebrate. These are the things we commemorate. This is what Reformation Sunday is about. That's why churches gathered down in uh, uh, Hudson Valley United Reformed Church a couple weeks back, and we accentuated what? Well, we accentuated faith, justification by faith, uh, grace that uh, meets us in the gospel, and uh, that whole complex of ideas that were were defined and accentuated and um, uh, uh, declared and uh, gloried in, because Roman Catholicism seemed to teach something quite contrary, uh, salvation by, by, by works. Uh, at least in a lot of a lot of ways. Um, no, it's not that they didn't know about grace. It's not that they didn't know about faith. It's not that they didn't know about Christ. It's not that they didn't know about Scripture. They knew about all those things, but they looked to add to those things other things that we were um, inconsistent with the purity of the message of the gospel. And so the church was called back to that purity. But again, the danger is because our mindset is consumed with those 
realities that we come to the book of Romans and anytime we find a mention of faith it's a mention of imputed faith uh, it gave you that whole picture of the different aspects of the doctrine of justification as defined by the shorter catechism and we read it into it and it may not be that that's what faith is there Yes, there are aspects in which faith is God's declaration and brings God's declaration. We're righteous in His sight. We stand uh, forgiven. We we stand accepted uh, because uh, Christ's righteousness becomes ours uh, through faith. But there are places where faith is mentioned and it doesn't speak so much about um, a simple act of faith. It, It speaks about a life of faith or it speaks about what faith does. Works of faith, uh, uh, the Hebrews uh, 11 passage that tells you what the hearers of faith did. And um, you don't say that they were justified after they did all those exploits. No, but faith does those things. Faith is uh, part of not only our justification, but it's part of our adoption, it's part of our sanctification, it's part of, again, the whole complex of biblical salvation. And so when we come into Romans chapter 1, we tend to make our assumptions that the concerns of justification, which we find in chapters 3, 4, and 5, which are clearly there, are also there right at the outset, where Paul says that he's ready to preach the gospel to those that are at Rome, uh, for it's in the gospel a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And uh, our thought is, well, Paul has begun to teach our doctrine of justification by faith right there and then, right at the beginning, and then the rest of it is just an opening up of what's in chapter uh, chapter 1. Uh, the only problem is, is there's other aspects of righteousness and faith that the, um, that the book of Romans talks about. Uh, for instance, Romans chapter 8 speaks about that the righteousness of uh, that the obedience of faith, I'm sorry, I'm getting it wrong. Romans 8, let me read it to you. Yeah, the righteous requirements, it says. There's righteousness there. Righteous requirements of God's law will be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So evidently righteousness has to do with life as well as what's imputed to us as we believe the gospel and come, come to faith. And then righteousness also has to do with not just our acts of righteousness or our uh, imputed righteousness given to us as a gift by faith, but also has to do with God's righteousness, of God being the righteous God and yet the one who declares righteous those who believe in Jesus. So God's righteousness enters into the picture, not the righteousness he gives, but the righteousness that he is. He is a righteous God, and he acts in righteousness. And so it's not just a gift that we have in the gospel that's the gift of righteousness. I think Romans 5 mentions that, the gift of righteousness that's received um, uh, through faith, through the obedience of, of Jesus. So what I'm pointing out is that there's complexity here. That there's, you don't assume a definition just because you find it somewhere else. Now we always need to be comparing scripture with scripture. We just need to go into other portions of scripture to see what that witness is but then this assumption ought not to be because it's found in Galatians. It means the exact same thing in the book of Romans. I mean, Galatians had its own set of concerns. You have the Judaizers that were going around and saying, except you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we find that in Acts 15. And the Council of Jerusalem met to address the issue. It does seem that the book of Galatians was addressed to address that issue as well of another gospel 
of another Jesus that was being proclaimed. Uh, the Corinthian letter had that, the second Corinthians had that same set of circumstances. Another gospel, another Jesus, another spirit. The Paul mentions uh, false teachers. You don't have that in the book of Romans. You don't have false teachers that have come into the church at Rome looking to um, take the people's minds away from uh, the purity of Paul's gospel. We have a, a tension within the church between members from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, yes, but you don't have those intruders from without. Enemies within, perhaps, or tension was within, they need to be addressed, but not the undermining of the gospel that was taking place in the churches of Galatia and in the church at Corinth. And so um, we have to take Romans on its own and not assume that the same teaching is here exactly as we find it in Galatians. So though Galatians sheds its light on Romans, Romans has its own set of concerns. Even when Paul uses similar language, we shouldn't assume just because similar language is, is used that the meanings of those words are all the same all the times that are, it's used. I mean, you take a word, for instance, like namos, the Greek word for law. We're going to find that in this book in abundance. Law is mentioned again and again and again and again. Um, Law in the Galatian letter was largely the laws that um, were being required uh, by the Judaizers. Unless you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved wasn't really talking about the moral law there. I think there's principles in Galatians that cover the moral law. For instance, if the law could be given that could have made us righteous, then God, we would be justified by the law. No law can make us righteous. No law can atone for our sins. No law can give us strength to do God's will. But law means different things in different places. I think every commentator has agreed upon that because every book I've ever read on the subject of the law always begins with the, with the observation. I mean, they all do, really. I take my word for it. All begin with the observation that the law in Paul is a very complex subject. It's complex. It's complex. It's difficult. It's di- they all say it's difficult. All say it's complex. That's because they read the letters and they know that that has different meanings and different shades of meanings. And so we shouldn't assume the same meaning in every place. Are you all with me on that? So we've got to take it on its own. And I gave you some reasons last week why Paul's mention of righteousness probably is not the gift of righteousness that is in Jesus, that God has established a righteousness through Christ's obedience, through Christ's suffering, his obedience unto death, his perfect life of righteousness that now is a gift, is given to us who believe. Now, it's not an outrageous idea that it could mean that. It just doesn't seem to be what Paul is saying here. It's an idea that we find in other places, and we find it as a leading part of our understanding of justification, and it's very tempting to just read it into uh, the passage. But there's just a couple problems with that. Now, one of the problems is that in the whole context of um, Romans, uh, another, um, another attribute of God, also in the same... Uh, case of the noun, uh, you know, Greek Greek nouns have cases, and those cases will define something of how it's to be understood, and it's the genitive case. And genitive genitive case can mean it it belongs to um, the subject or the object. It could be either the God who is righteous, it could be the righteousness he gives to us or makes of us, or it could be something else. We just don't know the meaning of the genitive because that's uh, that's um, it's, it's complex, it's difficult, like these, some of these other things. 
But in Romans 8, when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, from against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, and you see how similar that is um, to what Paul says in, um, in um, verse uh, 16. I'm sorry, verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. You see it? 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. 18, the wrath of God is revealed. So you have two attributes of God revealed. Righteousness and wrath. You all with me? What is the wrath of God? How is that to be understood? Well, it's to be understood in terms of what God does in his wrath. It's his wrath that is revealed in his actions. And the way God acts is how his righteousness, how his wrath is revealed. And I also think it's true that it's in the way God acts that his righteousness is revealed. Because he acts for our salvation. In the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. Because in the gospel is revealed what God, how God acts. Not for our separation from him, as wrath does. Wrath gives them over. Wrath gives them up. Wrath says, I'm done with them. Righteousness says, I draw you near to me. I bring you back from distance to nearness. I bring you into close proximity to myself in my righteousness. It's my righteousness that's acting for your salvation, bringing you out of sin, out of distance, out of, out of um, separation, back into my presence, into my grace, into my favor. So... You see what I'm thinking, how I'm looking at it? So I think that's what Paul's saying in the gospel. That's the righteousness of God that's revealed. And when you go into the Old Testament and you look at the, the meaning of righteousness, and again, it has different variations. It has different shades of meaning, even in the Old Testament. But there is, particularly in the prophets and in the Psalms, uh, and I don't know the, all the verses before me. Uh, one of them that comes to my mind is, is Psalm 98, I believe it is. Look at Psalm 98. And you remember that in the poetry of the Old Testament, you have what's called parallelism. And parallelism is the way in which Hebrew poetry is, is conceived. It's, it's written in ways that uh, take one line and it puts it in relationship to the, to the next line. Or the next line is put into relationship to the one that, that's prior. And sometimes that relationship is um, it's, uh, the opposite. It can be the exact opposite. Sometimes it can be uh, quite similar. And most of the time it's sort of similar, but usually similar building up on the previous idea. It's, 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 it's akin to the previous idea, but adding something to the original picture. And um, you look at this. Um, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. Again, this is God acting. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yahweh has made known. Again, the righteousness of God's revealed. Now God now Yahweh's made known. God Yahweh's revealed what? His salvation. He's revealed his salvation, made known his salvation. Then actually the word revealed is in the next line. He is revealed. Just like righteousness is revealed in Romans. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Well, if this is an instant of, um, of uh, parallelism that is similar parallelism where one line relates to the next line, 
And you ask the question, well, what does it mean that he revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations? You'd, you'd conclude, well, what the previous line says, he's made known his salvation. That the revealing of his righteousness is the making known his salvation. What does the gospel do? It makes known God's salvation, right? It reveals his righteousness. It reveals God's saving act of righteousness. That God is a God who righteous in righteousness works salvation. So I think that's what the Roman letter is talking about. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the God's power to salvation. Why is it God's power for salvation? Because in this gospel is revealed a righteousness of God, the saving acts of God. His saving righteousness is revealed. So y'all with me on that? Does that make sense? Okay, we solved one problem. We're ready to move on to the next one. <laughs> Romans is difficult. It, it really is. I mean, it, it's, it's such a wonderful letter when we really hear it, but it always repays going back, rereading it, reconsidering it, and just trying to come to grips with some of its pr- profundity. It's, it's deep. It's deep. Uh, the next expression is, uh, um, verse 17 for in it, that is in the gospel, it's got this, this gospel that's the power of God for salvation, um, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, is what the ESV says. What other translations do we have represented here this morning? Okay, what does it say there? From faith to faith. Uh, his says, says, from faith for faith. From faith to faith. And that's one understanding of what this is. This is uh, Faith is mentioned with, uh, uh, with uh, prepositions that precede it. There's two Greek prepositions uh, that precede faith. It's the same word, pistis, the Greek word for faith. But before it is uh, prepositions, and they're different. They're different. Uh, the first one is the preposition ek, which can mean from or out of, has other meanings as well, but out of faith, uh, um, from faith, uh, and then the Greek preposition, I believe it's ice, is the next one, which means, which can, which can mean um, uh, towards or to, here in the ESV it says for faith, so you have one meaning that says from faith, um, from the faith that saves you and brings you to know Jesus to the faith that continues on and perseveres it, it may that then be from, from faith from beginning to end faith from beginning to end is that what the NIV says? it's close, it's from first to last from first to last, there you go, NIV NIV took the prepositions and said from first to last that's what it means, faith is from first to last first to last um, but there's other ways in which these prepositions could be understood um, there's ways these prepositions are used in other places. Um, and there's other ways in which Paul can refer to certain things twice and say from this to this. Um, think of uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16, that uh, we all with open face, beholding is in a mirror. What? The glory of the Lord are being transformed by the Spirit from glory to glory. From glory to glory. 
that could be from glory from first to last but it also could mean from one stage of glory to the next stage of glory or to the succeeding stage of glory it could have the picture of a growing progressive building glory that is revealed to the people of God as we with open face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord as we become fixated upon Jesus we grow from glory to glory his glory begins to shine and be imposed upon us and we're conformed to him him from one stage of glory to the next it's a building thing so it could be from first to last it could be um, you know from beginning to end or it could be from one stage to the next stage the other things that people suggest uh, they intrude you got to intrude something you got to say from from this to this what does it mean from what faith to what faith from what glory to what glory um, there's also another uh, usage of that in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, when, when Paul says that we are a, a, an, a, an odor uh, of Christ um, uh, an odor to those that are, are being saved of life to life from life to life and the other from death to death and uh, that could be just an increasing measure of life and death that uh, solidifies us and holds us in its, in its, in its, as captives either to life that's the blessed captivity to be captives of life or to be captives of death it could be from one stage to an next could be from first to last could be something else some suggest with regard from faith to faith that it could be from the faith that God uh, from the faithfulness of God to the faithfulness of his people or it could be from the faithfulness of Jesus to the faithfulness of his people and that, that would, that would uh, take faith as faithfulness, which sometimes it can be. And some people would say, well, that's what's being spoken of, that uh, Jesus' faith has purchased salvation for us in his obedience to his Father. And now that f- obedience uh, it comes to us in the gospel, and our faith is activated because of his faith, his faithfulness. Or some would say it's the faithfulness of the Old Testament saints to the faithfulness of the New Testament saints. There's all kinds of options that are thrown out there. My own sense of it is that it's more in the area of from one degree to another degree of faith. Or even from first to last. Because I think it's important when we think of the subject of faith to understand that the gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed and which is from faith to faith is not a one-time experience. The faith that saves is not a one-momentary experience, such as we see so often presented in testimonies when, you know, I was this horrible person, and then I went to this meeting, I heard the word, I believed in Jesus, I was saved, and I was told never to doubt my salvation. And even though I've strayed far from Jesus, I don't attend church, you know, I'm living a life that's not really honoring to God, and I got some guilt with respect to that. Yet um, I believed. I believed then. And so I believed then. The deal was done. God's word says I'm saved. I've never doubted. No, 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 no. Faith is always a present tense reality in John's gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him not who believed, past tense, but who believes in him, will not perish, for have, but have everlasting life. Because one of the things that the Bible assumes about faith is once it's genuine and real, it's persevering. Faith doesn't quit. At least genuine faith doesn't, doesn't quit. Because faith is our introduction to Jesus. 
It's coming into the orbit of his grace and salvation that regardless of whatever might come in between, and lots of the things do, we never lose sight of the reality of who he is. And we never lose sight of the reality of our need of him. And so there will always be um, a coming to Jesus, not moment, but a coming to Jesus pattern of living, ever coming back to him again and again and again and again. Not a momentary thing, a thing that is lifetime and a thing that is, uh, again, from beginning of our trusting him to the end of our trusting in him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And our faith has a beginning and it has an end and it has a perseverance in between. And so I think it's important to see that Paul's mention of faith to faith uh, is not just a past moment. It's not a momentary coming to Jesus. It's a lifetime of coming to Jesus again and again and again. Any comments or questions about from faith to faith? Oh, this righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith is something that's not just a New Testament thing, it's an Old Testament thing as well. Again, this gospel is revealed by the prophets of old, not only in terms of its promise of Jesus coming, uh, but also in the way in which life is given to people. Um, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, what happens after sin enters into the world is that death reigns. Um, Righteous life, life comes. Life comes. And it comes to those that are righteous. And again, I don't think it's just they're righteous by way of um, imputed righteousness. Uh, they're righteous because they've come to know Jesus. Yes, that means they're righteous in Him for sure. But it also means that righteousness has come to move them out from rebellion into submission, into embracing God's word by faith that leads to life. And it leads to life because the righteous build their hopes on it, builds, builds their confidence upon the word of God. Because when God comes in the gospel, or when God comes in history to a people facing death with the promise of life, he says, this is the way of life and this is the way of death. you got to choose. I set before you this day, Moses says, death and life. Which will you choose? Choose life, he says. Choose the way of life. And what's the way of life? The way of life is conformity to the covenant. The way of life is embracing God's word and God's will. I should point out, in the Old Testament, the idea of righteousness in the Old Testament often has that as its leading idea, that it is a conformity to the standard that God has given to us. Sometimes we think of the righteousness of the law, it's the Conformity to the law, the things that the law requires. That's the righteousness of the law. Um, the righteousness of faith, it corresponds to, or it, uh, it um, is in conformity with what faith requires. And what does faith require? It means it, it requires that you base everything upon God's way of life. 
upon what God said is the way to live. Now, the quotation comes from the book of Habakkuk. And the book of Habakkuk had its own set of circumstances in which this word came to the prophet. So we've got to go back to the book of Habakkuk. So you go to the Minor Prophets, and you've got uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Habakkuk. So Nahum, Habakkuk. And the, the whole background to this uh, statement in chapter uh, 2 and verse 4 is what we read about in chapter 1. Habakkuk has a complaint. He has, he's troubled. He's, he's pleading before God with regard to the circumstances of his society. Uh, let's just read a little bit of it in verse 2 of Habakkuk 1. O Lord, how shall I cry for help and you will not hear? I'll cry to you violence and you will not save. Lord, things are bad. There's help that's needed and we're calling upon you for help and it doesn't seem like you're doing much to help the situation. Violence seems to be rising and, and doesn't seem like anything is happening even if we're crying, Lord, there's violence. Help your people in the midst of this. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Lord, there's iniquity. It's abounding. It's growing. It's more and more pervasive in society. And um, Lord, you don't seem to be doing anything. So, I mean, all the, all the Jeremiads we do about our own modern day, it's not just Jeremiads. They're Habakkuk statements of just lament of the culture just going downhill uh, at rapid speed. Destruction, violence are before me, strife, contention arise, so that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth uh, perverted. Now, what does God do when Habakkuk makes this complaint, when he makes this lament in the presence of God? Well, the answer in verse 5 is, is not what Habakkuk is expecting, desiring, wanting at all. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Oh, great, revival's coming. God has it all figured out, all planned out. Stuff is just going to get great again. We're going to make uh, Israel great again. It's all going to be happy days are here again. I took a, you know what I just did? This is, this is very smart of me. I took a Republican and Democrat expression. Uh, make Israel great again on the one hand you know what party that belongs to and happy days are here again that was the Democratic Party with Roosevelt they were singing happy days are here again so again parties always have this expectation great things are ha- going to happen just put us into office well God says I'm not putting into office anybody that, that's going to make things great again or happy days won't be here again trouble's coming you think this is bad? you think it's bad that there's this internal strife within the country of violence and injustice and uh, all that you've complained about? God says, Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Read their Babylonians. Read their war machine. Read their chariots and steel and sword and violence of, of proportions that never took place in Israel. Devastation of the whole land. The destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, God says, the bitty and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth 
to see his dwellings not their own. What Israelite did that to you? I mean, they've done bad things, but they didn't take away your houses. They didn't take away your lands. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swift. I mean, is this what a pack of quantity here? No. No. Habakkuk's troubled. And in a real sense, uh, the complaint of chapter 1 and the argument of chapter 1 enters into chapter 2. I, I need to just hasten it uh, to where we come to the conclusion and see what's going on here. Habakkuk says in chapter 2 and verse 1, I'll take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, I'll look out to see what he will say to me. And what I, I will answer concerning my complaint. Uh, he's engaged in this dialogue with God throughout the first chapter. And the dialogue continues into chapter 2. And he says, I'm going to take my stand at the watch post. I'm just going to wait. What is God going to say? How is God going to respond to me? And what am I going to say in response to him? And the Lord answered me. The Lord answered me, verse 2. Write the vision. Make it plain on, on tablets so that he may run who reads it. In other words, commit this to writing, Habakkuk. This is not just a private revelation for you. This is something that needs to be put in, on tablets or scrolls or needs to be written. It needs to be preserved. This is a revelation that the nation needs to hear and generations yet unborn need to hear. So commit it to writing. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. If you're not going to get the resolution you're open for, Habakkuk, just simply wait for it. It surely will come. It will not delay. And again, God in his sovereignty has all these matters under control. He's going to bring the Babylonian captivity. He's going to bring his judgment upon the nation that is deserving. And he's going to save out from that nation a remnant people. A remnant people that, interestingly enough, he's going to preserve in Babylon. The captives that went into captivity in Babylon, that's where the future was. And we've repeated this in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. That's where Israel's future was. It wasn't back in the land. That land was going to continue to know devastation. It was going to continue to know uh, the sword. And it was going to know famine. And it was going to know pestilence. It was going to know every kind of uh, uh, hardship. Uh, but God's future for the, his people, his remnant people, was in Babylon. And the people were instructed, at least when Jeremiah came upon the scene, uh, to go quietly to Babylon and to settle down and, and, buy, and build houses and uh, to plant your gardens and to take wives and to have children and to seek the peace of the city. In their peace, you will find peace. But you see, the people won't be patient for that resolution. People largely are not going to believe the prophet Jeremiah. They're not going to believe the prophecy that Habakkuk puts to writing. They're going to be hasty. They're going to think they're going to figure out a way of salvation on their own. They're going to enter into an alliance with the Assyrians, if not the Assyrians, the Egyptians, if not the Egyptians. They'll find some other thing to do. Uh, they're going to figure it out on their own. They're not going to be happy with God's solution with God's ways. And you know what? Because they don't heed God's solution, His word through His prophets, they're going to die. They're going to die. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not right within him. He will not hear God's word. He will not submit to God's will. He will not receive God's message. 
bought by God's messenger in a way in which he's going to just give his whole soul and life and future and destiny upon the fulfillment of the word of God. He's going to figure out a plan on his, on his own and they're going to die. But the righteous shall live out of his faith. By his faith. Trusting God's word. Believing God's word. Submitting to God's word. Obeying the voice of his prophets. And it was, you know, imagine yourself as an American being told that uh, the Chinese are going to invade and your future is to submit to Chinese rule. It just against everything in our, our minds and hearts. We, we're glad we're not in such a fix as to figure out whether to pick up arms against the Chinese or to submit to them so submissively. But that's what Israel was told to do. And they were told to do it by God. This was God's word. And you see, the point of it all is that faith calls upon us to, to believe things, to trust in things, to bank upon things, to put our whole soul's future upon things that in and of itself is really difficult to do. It's not easy. It seems to defy all reason, all rationality, all the natural way of doing things. Abraham, get up from the Chaldees and go out to a land that I'm going to give to you. Okay, Lord, I'll go, I'll go that far. I'll do that. So by faith he does it. By faith he does it. And he comes into a land, and it's not until he gets to the land, or like gets in Haran, that the first word comes that um, God's going to give him a seed that is as numerous as the sand of the sea. And that's in 15, I think, and 17, it's as numerous as the stars of the heavens. This great multitude that no man can number. And what does he see? He's an aging man with a wife who's aging, long past the years of childbirth. How in the world can this be? How in the world can this be? And you see all the problems that Abraham had with them. He said, oh, let, let, it, let Ishmael live before you. And he said, you know, what, what will you give me uh, since I have no heir? And the heir is Eliezer of Damascus. Damascus is in chapter 15. Then let Ishmael live before you. And God has to continually say, no, it's out of your own body, dying and dead and incapable of bearing children. Yet I'm going to raise up an heir. I'm going to raise up a seed. Um, and Paul, in chapter 4 of Romans, look at what he says about Abraham's faith. I mean, it's not an easy thing to believe on God's terms. In chapter 4 of Romans, the faith of Abraham was described in this way. He says in um, verse 18, I'm sorry, let's, let's back it up a bit. Well, let's start. Let's start with sixteen. I got to put on my glasses to do this. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all the children of Abraham, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Not just the one who's born a Jew, but one who shares Abraham's faith. He's father of us all, as it is written, "I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed." 
remember, in the light of these promises, it says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. He gives, he's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The womb is dead. Your ability to raise up children is, is, is non-existent. And yet, in hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. This was hopeless, and yet he believed against hope. He still believed. In one thing, he had God's word. He had God's covenant commitment. He had God's own oath-sworn promise. And he should be the father of many nations, as he uh, as he'd been told. As he'd been told. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which he did, which was good as dead. No hope's coming from the body. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, which he did. No help, no hope's coming from her womb. No help's coming from my body, nor her womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He, but he grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And this is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because faith threw everything upon the promise. It rested everything of his future hopes upon the promise. That's what faith does. That's what Abraham's faith did, right? That's what the faith of the Judahites did when Ezekiel said, seek the peace of the Babylonians. The future is not here, it's, it's there until God's pleased to bring you home. Wait, as God told Habakkuk. Don't be puffed up. Live by faith. Trust the word of God. God is able to do the things he has promised. And you think of the gospel. You know, the gospel is a message we are very well versed in and familiar with, but when you really sit back and and consider it, it's rather a very hard proposition for someone not born of the Spirit to really enter into and believe. Uh, Paul says it's to the Jew a stumbling block, to the Greek it's, it's foolishness. It's sheer madness that our eternal destiny would be hinging upon a Jew of the first century who died under Roman rule, a death of crucifixion, that shameful torture stake that Jesus died upon. Um, the word of the cross is foolishness. If we've not been called, if we've not been quickened, if we've not been made alive by the Spirit of God. And for any of us to put our whole weight of hope and confidence and future um, upon that act in history, I mean, it would seem ludicrous if it weren't true. I mean, but it's true. But it's hard to conceive as being true, but it's true. It's true. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing to us our trespasses. God, he was, he was crucified for our, 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 our transgressions, and he was raised for our 
justification. And we believe that. And we put the whole weight of our souls upon that reality. That's what faith does. Faith trusts God's word. God has spoken. And God's word will not lead us astray. God's word is not spoken in vain. God's word is not spoken to confuse us. God's word is spoken to, to inform us and to bring us to live our lives in the light of these realities that change everything, that make everything new, that uh, really the, is the stuff of a new creation, stuff of a new order of things that God is doing. And isn't that what God told us to back up? He says, I, I do a work in the midst, I'm sorry, that's chapter 3, was in chapter 2. Um, I'm not, I'm not coming across the exact words I was thinking of. Well, he says, uh, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It, it will come to pass. It seems slow. Wait for it. Wait for it. It surely will come. It will not delay. <laughs> so God's word will be fulfilled, but it doesn't, it's not on, you know, God's not operating on Eastern Standard Time. Pacific Coast time. He's, he's operating on eternal time. <laughs> That's a contradiction, I know. But in his eternity, God is bringing about all of his eternal purpose. And we can be confident and we can be assured and we can know that God is doing a work. It's a marvelous work and a work that we should take great joy in um, believing and considering and resting our hearts in and having our hopes fully um, established on the realities of what his word declares is and will be. Paul says that's what the gospel is. It's his power for salvation to those who believe. To the Jew first, also to the Greek in it that is in the gospel. That saving righteousness of God is revealed. God's saving plan and provision and purpose and actions and history is revealed uh, from faith to ever-increasing faith. As the prophet says, that's how life is achieved, through faith, believing the promises of God, and believing the promises of God that seem so, humanly speaking, unlikely, are yet real and genuine and true and to be trusted in and time will come when we will live in the fulfillment of all of the promises of God, not just in terms of their being inaugurated at Christ's first coming, but consummated in eternal glory in his presence. Well, that's where Paul begins this exposition of the gospel, and now the whole picture of righteousness, uh, the righteousness of God revealed is now going to be placed in contrast with the wrath of God that's revealed in uh, verse 18 and following and it's to that we'll begin to uh, address our minds uh, the next time we get together in the book of Romans. So I hope some of this has been helpful, not too confusing. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the clarity in which Paul speaks even when there's areas where we're uncertain the, the exact meaning, yet the overall message is clear that we base the totality of our existence upon what God has done in Christ what the gospel itself reveals about the 
infinite love and mercy and goodness of a saving God whose saving righteousness has entered into human history in the form of the Redeemer who's come, who's lived and died and been raised and reigns at your right hand to give help and hope and spiritual blessings and sustenance and encouragement and ultimately everlasting glory in your presence. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the fullness of grace and salvation that is in him. We pray that we would be a people that would be growing in our faith, that from faith to faith we would be trusting Jesus. We would be trusting the realities of things that eye has not seen nor ear has heard nor has ever entered into the heart of man, the things that you have revealed in the gospel of your Son. So hear our prayers and bless us as your people. Be with us as we greet one another, as we enter into the morning hour of worship, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.